You wanna finish what you started? You came to the right place. The girls that you came with, you might have to part with. Depending on how this thing shakes. Wabatosa, Kenosha, Economowakas in the house. Okay, welcome to another episode of The New Look. Uh, we can talk about that title with uh, our guest because he, he's, he's a, a fan of the, the same period of history that I'm a fan of. Uh, we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Andy Krepinevich. Uh, Andy, how are you, sir? Fine, Michael. Yourself? I, I'm good. So there's any number of issues we could talk about today, but primarily I want to talk with you about defense issues. You've had a... Uh, an incredible career um, in uh, the defense community, but let's start at the at the beginning. Where are you from, and um, how did you get interested in this stuff? Well, uh, born uh, and raised on, in Long Island, in New York, so I grew up there. And uh, I guess one way to sort of explain how I became so interested in, in the military, I remember as a young boy there was a program, Victory at Sea. And it was a half-hour show, <clears throat> chronicled uh, the, the Navy's success in the Pacific War in World War II. And there was a barbecue one weekend, and uh, a lot of uh, big, big family, so uh, a lot of men in the family. And uh, I was always interested in victory at sea. So uh, it was about, I don't know, six, seven o'clock, and I uh, wandered into the, the family room to turn on the TV and watch it. And I was all by myself. And then uh, not very long thereafter, I turned around and there were about six or seven men sitting behind me watching the show. And if you were um, a youngster of that age, uh, you typically had a lot of people you knew who were in the war. And so I, I think uh, my admiration for them and just my general interest, my general inclination uh, toward things military uh, kind of pushed me in that direction. So uh, always interested in history, military history, and uh, ended up going to the military academy. Uh, I am always I always feel bad for people that went to West Point or the Naval Academy. They're great schools. Don't get me wrong. Uh, and I just have to say, go Navy, beat Army uh, oh. while we're here. Um, but did, were you able to have any fun as an undergraduate at West Point? Uh, yes, well, it's the first year as a plebe, it's, it's typically tough. Uh, back then, it was especially difficult uh, because of the hazing and so on. Um, but uh, I know you're a football fan. And uh, one of the great things about being the plebe, <clears throat> they're a plebe at West Point back then, was first, the team was still quite good, and it's having a renaissance now. But uh, every Thursday night, they would have a rally before the Saturday game. And uh, during the rally, the plebes didn't have to brace at, at dinner, which meant you could sit and, and relax and eat without being hazed. And then afterwards, they would have skits. Uh, the rabble rousers, which was the West Point term for cheerleaders, uh, they would put on skits and people would get all psyched up. Uh, you'd have bonfires before the Navy game. I, I will tell you there's uh, a particular story. Here, here's a fun story at the expense of the Navy. So there's always a, a Navy tactical officer, kind of an exchange officer at West Point. And tactical officers, there's one assigned to each company. So there's a, an active duty officer, and he monitors the cadets and enforces discipline when he needs to. Uh, anyway, um, <clears throat> there was this, this one Navy tack, and uh, the, the cadets, uh, he had just gotten a new car. And the cadets, uh, unknown uh, to the TAC, uh, to this Navy officer, approached his wife 
uh, and filled her in on a scheme they had and got her permission. And uh, typically what happens is the, the Thursday night before the Navy game, there's a bonfire. And uh, typically either the Navy TAC gives a speech extolling the virtues of the Navy football team and where he's booed down, uh, or the cadets come and visit him at his house and he does the same thing. Well, he had the new car sitting out there. Uh, unknown to him, uh, they had bought, uh, everyone had chipped in in the Corps, the Corps of Cadets, to buy a, a replica of this car. Same make, same model, same color. And uh, they had it out <clears throat> in an area. And uh, so he's talking. And at, at a certain point, they begin to douse this car with, with uh, gasoline. And they set it on fire. <laughs> And the, he went ballistic. Uh, of course, the fire trucks were right around the corner. His wife kind of restrained him after his, his 10 seconds worth of uh, heart attack. Uh, but you could do things like that every once in a while. And uh, they were certainly memorable. And, uh, you know, again, you had to get certain permissions and so on. So it, it wasn't all uh, drill and, and studies at West Point. Well, there's certainly an underexplored connection between Green Bay, uh, the U.S. Army, and West Point, which is at the intersection of Douglas MacArthur, Red Blake, and Vince Lombardi, all of whom are kind of in this weird uh, triangle. West, Lombardi coached at West Point, and uh, you're too young, to, but I, I was actually able to watch the, the Packer games uh, during the, the real glory years when Lombardi was coaching. And uh, I don't know how, how knowledgeable a Packer fan you are. Oh, boy. You can't I, embarrass me in front of my own constituents here, but we'll see. Yeah. The, the 1962 line, if you can name them, that in my estimation, that was the greatest offensive line in the history of football. Oh, my gosh. I can't. I give up. That's I, a hardcore so question. The is, so some of, your, some of your constituents will remember this. Not too many. The center was a guy named Jim Ringo. And then the guards were uh, Thurston and Kramer, two Hall of Fame guards, as far wow. as I know, anyway. Uh, one tackle was Forrest Gregg, who went to the Hall of Fame. Sure. The other, uh, the tackle was Bob Skaronsky. And Bart Starr, and I can see you've got the jersey behind you there, Bart Starr said Skaronsky, for his money, was the best offensive lineman on that team. So, and they, uh, Horning and Taylor could just run by that, behind that line all day. You and I could run behind that line all day long. Uh, they were astounding. And growing up on Long Island, oddly enough, I couldn't stand the New York Giants. So when the, the Packers would play the Giants, which they did in the championship in 61 and 62, it was a pleasure to watch the Pack just run over the Giants and, and take both championships. So uh, kind of a, uh, a uh, I guess, second-order Packer fan. That is some very impressive Packers knowledge that you just demonstrated. Wow. Wow. I stand, I stand in awe of that. that. That's actually among the many impressive things that I've seen you do. That could, that could take the cake right there. Okay, so you, all of the knowledge. That's right. You graduate from, uh, from West Point and then what was your MOS and, and what'd you do in the army? Well, um, MOS, I was an air defense officer and my first assignment there was a, a string of Nike Hercules missile sites throughout the United States back then. And the idea was they would provide air defense against the Soviet bomber attack. Now, these sites had uh, missiles and the, they're all shut down now. But uh, back then, uh, they, there were about 20 missiles at each site and most of them had nuclear warheads. 
which made it very interesting. In the 73 uh, Middle East crisis, the Arab-Israeli war, uh, President Nixon actually uh, called the military up to defense condition three. One is war. The only time we've been to defense condition two was during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So we're at defense condition three, and you get these coded messages, and there's something called a two-man safe. Uh, two men have to you, uh, enter a combination to open the safe and get the instructions, and you decode the instructions. And we actually got to the point in that, uh, uh, in that crisis, uh, we were one step short of arming the warheads on the missiles. And it was, uh, it was an incredibly uh, serious uh, situation because we really didn't know what was going on. At the time, Spiro Agnew had just resigned as uh, vice president. Uh, people were concerned about Nixon because it was the Watergate crisis. And somebody piped up and said, well, if something happens to Nixon, then Carl Albert, who was the speaker of the House at the time, would be our next president of the United States. And somebody said, well, if that's the case, I could see why we are on alert. <laughs> So that was my first assignment, air defense officer, and then later uh, went to Korea uh, and served there, and then spent some time training uh, Jordanian troops, uh, spent some time in Germany uh, with uh, uh, something called Reforger, reinforcing uh, units in, in Germany, and then uh, actually on to graduate school and then taught at West Point for four years. But were you a major when you went to Harvard? And what did the did I know now the, the army has a great program and all the other services are following suit to sort of send their a lot of their bright young officers to graduate school to get PhDs. But what was it like back then? Uh, back then, it, uh, they didn't have any formal program like that. Uh, I had done well in my studies at West Point in the social sciences. And so uh, they sort of kept tabs on me and said, would you like to come back and teach at some point? We'll send you to graduate school. And I said, yes, I'd be very interested. And the social sciences department is, uh, is, is fairly widely known for its uh, success in eventually placing officers in senior positions. Not me, but I know you worked for Dave Petraeus. You know, he was in the SOCH department, as they call it. The SOCH Mafia. Is yes, the SOCH Mafia. Yes. Uh, you know, General Corelli, who ended up being vice chief of staff of the Army. So th there are a number of uh, officers that went through that department. Although uh, McMaster always bristles because people think he's part of the Soch Mafia, but he's quick to point <laughs> out that he was a history guy. Well, that's right. There was a, uh, a rivalry, particularly with the softball teams, uh, between the history department and the Soch department. And uh, given my, my inclination uh, to read history, uh, I often would get uh, ribbed by officers in the history department that I'd somehow I'd, I'd mis I was miscast. I should have been uh, assigned to, to teach military history. Okay, so but how? Okay, so you went to Harvard, you kind of just made it work based on how you had done uh, in academics in prior parts of your career, and and what did you what did you study when you went to Harvard for graduate school? Uh, well, when I went there, um, I was uh, determined uh, to uh, shoot to get a PhD. So I was there for two years to get a master's. Uh, I wanted to set up a program uh, where I could qualify for the general examinations for the PhD and was very fortunate uh, and, and also very uh, innocent. Uh, so I arrived there early and just sort of walked up to the dean's office and said, I'd, I'd like to sit down with the dean and, and go through a, a, a course uh, selection. 
that would put me on the right track. Well, the dean at the time was Tom Schelling, a Nobel Prize winner. And uh, to my later amazement, he, uh, the secretary goes in, he comes out, uh, asks me to come in. He actually takes out the course catalog and he's, you know, how about taking this and that and followed uh, his instructions and fortunately was able to pass the general examinations. But the kind of courses I took, um, primarily in security studies. Uh, so, you know, there, the Cold War was uh, raging at the time. Uh, there were concerns about a hollow military. Uh, we were on the cusp of uh, Reagan's election. Of course, he ran on a, a strong defense uh, platform. Uh, so that was uh, that seemed like the right thing to take, particularly given that I was going to be teaching those kinds of courses back at the social department at West Point. And then what was your dissertation ultimately on? Uh, the dissertation, uh, it's, it's interesting, um, went to talk to my dissertation advisor, who uh, actually was William Kaufman at MIT. And Kaufman uh, worked for the defense secretary in the Carter administration. And he just said, you know, find something you like. You know, what's what's a topic you're interested in? And I said, well, it's, it's only been a couple of years since Vietnam. How did we lose that war? And, and so uh, he said, well, why don't you, uh, you know, do a study on that? And so uh, I did a study on the United States Army in Vietnam as a case history of uh, organizational failure. And I was very fortunate at West Point. Uh, they gave me a, uh, about a month in the summer and went down to the Center for Military History here in Washington. And uh, they opened up uh, all their files to me. So I spent about a month just, uh, it was a treasure trove. And so uh, that became the dissertation and the dissertation eventually became a book. Uh, called The Army in Vietnam, correct? That's correct. And I remember that because I believe it was assigned to me when I went to get my PhD. So you must have done something right. That I didn't, because my dissertation exists online somewhere, and that's not well, published. Before. That's because you haven't taken time to get it published, because it's a, it's, it ought to be published. And uh, it, would be a, it would be a much more important contribution, given the topic, uh, looking at uh, the situation we faced in this country the last time we uh, were confronted by a great power challenger. So, you know, your work on uh, Solarium and, and uh, the other studies in the late 40s and early 50s, I think is, is a history and an analysis that would be um, very useful uh, for senior U.S. policymakers today to, to read and take to heart. Well, that's nice of you to say. Uh, I just, while we're, while we're on it, when you, so you have a company called Solarium LLC, Yes. Uh, so I'd just be curious when you kind of got introduced to Project Solarium and your thoughts on Ike. Uh, well, the um, I, I actually uh, was was very interested. There's a a book by Bowie and Immerman. I think you and I have talked about. Uh, I interviewed uh, Immerman on this uh, podcast. So well, I I it was amazing. I, I love I love Immerman, and I talked about my my mm -hmm. Bowie story, which is. He, he when he was in a rest home, he was 101 years old. He I printed out my uh, a chapter and he read it with like a magnifying glass and I spent two hours with him. So that book has like changed my life. Uh, well, it, it is a phenomenal book. Uh, and you're right, it flies under the radar. Uh, if I could recommend one book to people to read uh, until your dissertation gets published to really get a sense of how to approach this problem with China and Russia, it would be that book. But the interesting thing about Eisenhower is that uh, he comes into office and he had promised during the presidential campaign, given that the Korean War was going on, 
he said, if elected, I would go, I will go to Korea. That was the slogan. I will go to Korea. And he flies to Korea during the uh, transition period and assesses the situation. Interestingly enough, he doesn't fly back to the States. He takes a ship. And while he's on the ship, he is thinking about uh, how to do a fundamental strategic review to either confirm Truman's approach to containment or to, to adopt something different. And he stops in Hawaii and talks to Admiral Radford, who he decides is going to be his chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And he writes the terms of reference. He identifies uh, people he wants on these panels. And, and essentially, they start out with four panels, as I'm sure you know, looking at different strategic approaches, including the one that Truman had adopted. And these, uh, these four groups of people, they go to the National Defense University. They're there for six weeks. They're working six days a week. And remarkably, in this day and age, they keep it a secret. And the, the briefings are held in the solarium, the White House solarium, hence the, the nickname, the solarium study. And George Kennan, uh, who was, of course, one of the principal architects of the containment strategy, he's on one of these, these four committees. Actually, they, they reduce it to three. And so they come in and, and they, uh, in July of 53, and they brief Eisenhower. And Kennan remarks later on that after the, the three briefings, Eisenhower gets up and uh, Kennan says he talks for 30 to 45 minutes, uh, giving a strategic tour to horizon uh, of the Soviet Union and what, what needs to be done. And Kennan said in the course of that 45 minutes, Eisenhower demonstrated his intellectual superiority over every man in the room. So a uh, very impressive performance uh, by a president of the United States uh, and a very impressive undertaking, as, as you chronicle in your dissertation. It was funny. Emmerman kind of talked about this process through which historians like him get to rank presidents and they sort of all their rankings get put together. And I think when he first studied Eisenhower, I don't remember, but Eisenhower was like he wasn't even in the top half. And now, of course, he's habitually right. ranked top 10, if not top five. So it's really interesting. Well, it's uh, it, it really was kind of a hidden hand presidency. Yeah. Uh, where uh, I mean, again, uh, you know, growing up, uh, coming of, of uh, at least some sort of political awareness at, at that age, uh, but everybody was talking about Dulles as uh, Secretary of State. You know, Dulles was doing all the work. Eisenhower was out at the golf course, and uh, of course, it was it was quite the opposite. Uh, Eisenhower was uh, was really masterful, and of course, he learned from one of the best. Uh, in uh, General General Marshall, and uh, Marshall had the terrific experience of working with President Roosevelt and Churchill and Alan Brooke during World War II. So, uh, did you ever cross paths with uh, General Goodpaster in your career? Um, yes, a, a couple of times. In fact, uh, I, I've actually uh, was awarded the Goodpaster Award as a soldier scholar. Uh, so that's that's uh, one of my. Um, uh, really great, uh, great honors, uh, one of which I, I, I doubt I deserve. But anyway, um, good pastor was the superintendent at West Point when I went back to teach. They called him out of retirement. Uh, one of my mentors, Andy Marshall, had uh, had met good pastor uh, when good pastor uh, was working for for President Eisenhower. Good pastor was his military assistant as a colonel in the White House and. As you probably remember from the Bowie Emmerman book, uh, when Eisenhower would hold an NSC meeting, uh, only the principals were in the room. 
along with Cutler, who was his national security advisor and good pastor. And, uh, it, you know, Nixon remarked that uh, <clears throat> uh, when it came to those meetings and making decisions, he said Eisenhower was the most uh, analytic and ruthless person <laughs> you ever want to meet. So the, the image of him, you know, with the big Eisenhower smile and the arms raised in the air, V for victory, uh, that was a public persona. Uh, but when it came to business, uh, Eisenhower was was all business. And uh, by the way, later, I believe Eisenhower was asked by Nixon about whether he should appoint Mel Laird as secretary of defense. And Eisenhower described Mel Laird as too ruthless so <laughs> <laughs> or well, devious was the word he, he uh, used. <laughs> Great Wisconsin, well, there, I there, there could be devious, but um, again, um, I, I think in, in, in a number of instances, uh, you, there has to be a certain level of deviousness if, if you're going to make any progress. I know, like looking back on the just the the bureaucratic ledger domain between Kissinger and Laird, it, it makes all our problems today seem quaint in, in comparison. Well, yeah, my mentor, Andy Marshall, uh, worked for both. And, and uh, yeah, he, he would uh, he said you'd hate to be in the middle between yeah. those two guys when they got going. When did you work for Andy Marshall at the Office of Net Assessment? I was there from 89 to 93. So, so you're still on active duty at the time. Yes, yeah, still on active duty. In fact, I retired from the military out of that office. And then when did you write your book about Andy Marshall? Uh, that came out in 2015, so it came out about five years ago, and uh, I was very fortunate because uh, Marshall is a very private, or was a very private individual, and so he wasn't inclined to share much or talk much, uh, but my co-author, uh, Barry Watts, and I, we had both worked in the office, and I, I guess it was, um, again, I'm, I'm uh, uh, it's not really proper, but it was kind of a Bowie Interman thing where they, they knew the man and, and they were able to get the man to open up. And so that made their job a lot easier. And, and basically, we were just trying to tell Marshall's story. And he agreed to talk uh, on the on the basis that it would be an intellectual history. He didn't want anything you know personal about him or anything along those lines. So uh, that was an interesting experience, given that Marshall uh, you know, his his life history as an adult starts in the late 1930s. His work at RAND starts when it's organized in the late 1940s, and it runs all the way up to 2015. So you have an individual who really um, was at the center of things for about 60 years. Wow. As a mentor, do you was his primary contribution to you in terms of challenging your thinking, was it, I mean, I, I just hear Andy Marshall described as this Yoda-like figure. I never had the opportunity to meet the man. What would just give us a sense of what he was like? Um, uh, probably the, the best strategic thinker I, I ever came across. Uh, he, uh, very unusual, uh, if you come from a military background, uh, most military officers are used to going in and, and the boss tells them, uh, you know, this is the problem, this is the approach to the problem, and this is what I expect to come out <clears throat> at the end. And uh, Marshall would uh, basically tell you to go uh, look at a particular issue. He would provide very little guidance. And uh, he was really counting on you to tell him something he didn't know already. And so, uh, you know, to be prescriptive, um, 
would would be to defeat the purpose that he was trying to accomplish. Uh, he would say things like, <clears throat> how do we think about the problem? Uh, what are we trying to do? A lot of times people jump right into analysis and recommendations. And, well, what are we trying, you know, with respect to China, what are we trying to do here? You know, what kind of an outcome would we like to see? Um, he would say things like, uh, don't bring me, um, don't bring me, uh, don't tell me happy stories. Don't bring me happy endings. Uh, because if it's a happy ending, then that's not something the defense secretary needs to be worried about. Tell me what could go wrong. Um, he was uh, very encouraging when it came to scenario planning for a number of reasons, but one was uh, to avoid getting locked into a single approach to a problem, to realize that problems could have many dimensions as time went by, uh, the world could go in different directions, and how do we capture that kind of dynamic and hedge against the fact that we live in an uncertain world. So, <clears throat> whereas I think oftentimes in the Defense Department, uh, people tend to uh, fixate on, on one particular kind of problem uh, or outcome. Uh, he said, you know, we have to hedge against uh, a number of things that could happen. So uh, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to say in, in three or four minutes, uh, but those, I think, were some of the things that uh, you know, I took away from, from the relationship we had. Well, that's a perfect segue into some of your work. We're going to have to gloss over a lot of your career. Uh, we could spend three hours talking about it. The head of CSBA, you've served on every defense panel imaginable, worked for multiple secretaries of defense. Um, but maybe we can kind of frame a lot of your recent work with a Marshall-like question of what are we trying to achieve, right? Let's say we agree on the idea that China is our, our foremost threat right now. And I think we both do agree on that. That's sort of the organizing threat. Do you think the government has a, a clear sense of what our objective is in this in this great power competition? Uh, no. Uh, so I, let me, I guess, uh, elaborate a little bit. Uh, when I served on the Commission on the National Defense Strategy, it just came out in, uh, in 2019, I guess, uh, and one of the issues, we have a strategic choice, for example, uh, or several. One is, do we want to uh, try and uh, remain a dominant power uh, or do we want to retrench? That's, that's an important fundamental question. Uh, for over a century, we've said that we, uh, our security uh, will not permit a hegemonic power from establishing itself either in Europe or Asia. Okay, well, we have the Russians trying. I think they're going to fail. Uh, but the Chinese are trying in Asia, and they're trying in other parts of the world. And I think they, they do pose that kind of a challenge. Okay, uh, again, are we going to try and uh, you know, prevent that from happening? They're, they're establishing hegemony. Uh, or are we uh, going to, again, retrench, which some people are talking about? Second, uh, if, if you say that uh, we're going to maintain the, the kind of vital security interests and objectives we have since World War I, preventing hegemon, uh, then the question is, okay, uh, strategic choice, are we going to try and defend along the first island chain, where we have allies in Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, and implied security commitment to uh, to Taiwan. Uh, okay, if, if the answer to that is yes, uh, if, it, if it's no, then we have some important discussions to have with our allies and partners. If it's yes, then how are we going to do it? 
And the uh, in a testimony before Congress at one point, um, I was asked by a, a senator, uh, you know, don't I wouldn't uh, was it? Uh, don't you think we need more F-18s? And I, I said uh, it, it kind of depends, which was not the answer that uh, they they sought, uh, given that F-18s were being built in, in their state. And so the, the senator said, well. You know why? Why can't you give me a good answer? And I said, well, uh, it, it depends on, for example, are you going to defend the first island chain? And if you are, then how are you going to do it? And uh, this was a while back. And so I, people, I think it wasn't terribly long uh, after the Cold War. And I said, so if if you're going to defend the first island chain, um, you know, think about what we had in Europe during the Cold War. In the in the Cold War in Europe, we said this is how we're going to defend NATO. Uh, the Army and the Air Force developed this way of fighting called air land battle. And it said, <clears throat> we're going to not only try and defend against the frontline Soviet forces in Europe, but we're going to create these capabilities, these deep attack capabilities that we first saw in the first Gulf War uh, to go after the second echelon, the second wave of forces coming out of the Soviet Union. And we're also going to uh, preposition military equipment in Germany so we can rapidly reinforce. Uh, okay, so that people had a good understanding and would tell our allies this is what we're going to do and how do we coordinate this. The Navy said, look, you need, you're going to need to protect the sea lines coming from the United States. They developed something called the maritime strategy in which they were going to prevent the Soviets from coming past what was called the Greenland-Iceland-UK gap, the GIUK. And they built, they built submarines to push them back in the undersea domain. And they had something called the outer air battle for the carriers, which meant that they were going to send uh, their attack aircraft out to make sure that Soviet bombers with their missiles you know, weren't going to intrude into the Atlantic. The Marines said, well, we have a maneuver warfare doctrine and you don't want to be flanked in Norway. So we're going to preposition equipment there. And if the balloon goes up and the war starts, we're going to rapidly deploy to Norway, make sure the Norwegians can hold the northern flank. I said, look at the Western Pacific today. We have nothing like that. We, we, and so how can members of Congress make informed decisions about defense priorities when the American military doesn't even know how it's going to defend our allies in our position in the Western Pacific? And we are still, I'm sorry to say, in that sad state of affairs. Uh, you know, we haven't decided. And so in the absence of deciding, you, you just sort of run on what is known as program momentum. We just keep buying things that are in the program, uh, whether we need them or not, whether they're you know, focused on the right kind of problem and how we're going to address it. So uh, those are some of the, the questions I think uh, Andy Marshall would be asking if he were around, and I, I think that are worth asking today. You have... You have <clears throat> struck the center of my bullseye with that analysis because I keep saying this and it sounds stupid. I've said it to the commandant. I've said it to the CNO. I've said it to Mac. I've said it to everybody that cares about these issues. <clears throat> We've just never had a, we, we come in, we have these hearings. Some are good. Some are less than good. Fancy acronyms are thrown around. At our most ambitious, we talk about the implications of a post-INF environment and INF non-compliant missiles and all that. We've never sat in a room without cameras with the SecDef or whoever, the CNO, the commandant, 
<clears throat> with a map on the table and said, here's what we're trying to do. And based on the geography and our capabilities and our allied capabilities, here's what we need in order to do it. And oh, by the way, here's our theory of what the Chinese are trying to do or the PLA Navy. Like, that's a conversation that has not happened. To my knowledge, it's possible it no. happened in another room that I was not invited to. No, I, I will tell you that um, in 2014, uh, OSD asked me to head up a summer study. Uh, there was this work being done by the Air Force and the Navy on air-sea battle, which is something we developed at CSBA around 2009. And they said the, the ground forces can't figure out how to participate in this, how, to, how they function. So we spent about two weeks up at the Naval War College going through this with a team of experts and came out the, the briefing, uh, you know, OSD was happy with the briefing. And I decided to write a short piece for Foreign Affairs, uh, and it was called uh, Deterring China, the Case for Archipelagic Defense. And I'm probably the only guy who knows how to say archipelagic uh, without stuttering and stammering over it. But anyway, about two weeks after the paper comes out, <clears throat> I get an invitation to go to Japan. Uh, it was one of those uh, almost like mafia invitations, you know, you, you got to come here. And went there. It's a Yakuza uh, invitation. <laughs> spent time uh, with their Western Army commander who was responsible for defending uh, Kyushu, the southernmost main island, and then the so-called Southwest Wall, the, uh, the Ryukyu chain of islands that runs down to Taiwan. And he said, you know, uh, tell us about your concept. Uh, you know, I was briefing him and his generals. They were briefing me. I went uh, into Tokyo, met with their uh, senior um, uh, defense officials and, and MOFA folks. Uh, came back and then, uh, I guess about three months later, they said, well, will you develop your concept even further? So I wrote basically a 100-page operational concept uh, for the Western Pacific. And uh, it, it was in a fair amount of detail. And getting back to your point, Michael, you know, their point to me was, we keep waiting for your military to come up with something like this so we know how we can best fit in, how we can best cooperate. Uh, because just like you Americans, once something becomes part of our program of record, it, it, you know, this, the die has been cast. If we've made a bad decision, we could waste you know, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars. And it's, um, I don't know whether it's a case of we just haven't done this sort of planning for so long or we felt like we've had such a security buffer uh, that we could afford to be, uh, I guess, careless when it came to setting our defense priorities. But if you, uh, so I'll give you another example. I go in and uh, this is another uh, meeting uh, in the Pentagon. And I was fortunate in, uh, before I went to work in that assessment, I was on the Secretary of Defense's staff in the late 80s. And I was responsible for putting together the what was called the posture statement, which was a comprehensive document to Congress every year that explained everything. That's gone away. So 300 pages of detailed explanation to Congress is, is no longer required, uh, which I think is, is, a, is a real tragedy. Um, anyway. Uh, Why so is that, by the way? I mean, we have, and sort of at, simultaneously, the Pentagon's now drowning in useless reporting requirements that Congress foist upon them. And then Congress never reads those reports. Well, I, I think there was a couple of reasons. One is uh, when Secretary Cheney came in, uh, he was of the same mindset as you. Uh, and so the 
it became, you know, how can we reduce the number of reports? And so he worked with Congress on that, and it, it occurred over the course of, of a number of years. And uh, by 2006, though, uh, they were throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And they said, well, who needs this posture statement anymore? You know, we, we won the Cold War. We don't have any enemies. Uh, and I think that was the attitude. And I think the, the military was, quite frankly, um, happy to get out of the business of having to account to Congress on, on a number of these issues. And so what you end up with is this, um, they, they changed it. Uh, if you're interested, I can get you the information, but they, they changed it to something where Secretary Mattis could put out you know, a 15 or 20 page uh, overview of the national defense strategy, and that would satisfy the requirement. Uh, so uh, again, uh, it, uh, it, it, it really, uh, getting back to the point I was trying to make, when we did the posture statement, uh, an important part of it was the mobilization race between us and the Russians. And that's so you would there was a lot of effort that went into this this uh, mobilization on two sides so that you would get a sense of how the military balance was shifting. And one of the reasons why we decided to deploy four divisions of equipment, just the equipment in, in West Germany at the time, was we realized that at a certain point in the mobilization race, things really began to skew in favor of the Soviets. And if they saw things the way we did, they might see that as an opportunity to attack. And of course, that would weaken deterrence. And when I, I, I asked these questions uh, to people at the Pentagon, I said, well, how, what's our assessment of the mobilization uh, race between us and the Russians these days or between us and the Chinese? And you get these blank stares, just, you know, what, you know, what, what, what would we do? You know, what, what is that? And of course, uh, in their defense, this is not something we really felt we had to do for several decades. And so the people who were worried about that, the people who did that sort of thing, uh, those people in many cases are gone, retired and so on, left the military. Uh, so there are those kinds of uh, <clears throat> issues uh, that, uh, once came sec as second nature when you were dealing with a great power rival that uh, currently, you know, it just, uh, it's just not on the radar screen. And yet that is the thing you must do prior to making investments. I mean, it strikes me as a, as a necessary precondition for any sort of sound defense strategy. Do you think there's an element of not only have the the Pentagon's strategic skills atrophied as we kind of got a little complacent without a great power competitor, but perhaps we're afraid of of what the answers might be if we went through that honest strategic exercise, because it actually might hurt some legacy companies and um, some equipment and and things we might no longer need if we kind of play it out. Well, uh, I, I think if you're looking at a, a military that over the last you know, three or four decades, uh, you know, in, the eight, in the 70s and 80s, it was oriented on Europe, oriented on fighting a land force. Uh, in the 90s and aughts, it was oriented on uh, irregular warfare, uh, essentially whether it was in the Balkans or in the Middle East or in Afghanistan. And then you say, well, wait a minute, we, now we want you to focus on a, a large, technically sophisticated power uh, in the Far East, which is an, air, you know, an aerospace maritime domain. 
not not Europe, it's Asia. And uh, this is a very sophisticated power. Uh, they're going to come at you in every dimension. And to believe that the program of record uh, that we that's been uh, or, or the circumstances that drives today's current program of record, the the late Cold War and then the uh, the unipolar moment, uh, as uh, as it's been called, that somehow this program of record is is optimum based on that experience that in terms of developing it, I think is moonshine. To put it bluntly, um, okay. So as you look at the first island chain in particular, and let's say we arrived at some agreed um, goal for for our strategy, whether it's to prevent. CCP from dominating the first island chain or, or the region more broadly, or whether it was more ambitious to, you know, break up the CCP's, you know, uh, monopoly on power internal mm -hmm. to the country, whatever. What, as you look at the geography, as you've kind of teased out our ar ar archipelagic defense, <laughs> that is a mouthful. We're going to have to come up with a better name for that. A lot of people uh, call it ArcDef. <laughs> Arc <laughs> Are there certain things that are obvious to you in terms of, okay, we're investing here and that's useless in a fight or, or useless to the goal of deterring China by the Nile. And conversely, we aren't investing in XYZ that we need to be right now. Well, if, if you buy into the <clears throat> archipelagic defense uh, concept, uh, then what you would say in terms of the army is that the army uh, needs to scale back its investment of combined arms mechanized forces. Uh, might want to have some for Europe, but uh, its role in archipelagic defense would be to uh, basically invest in sea denial, air denial, and uh, jamming, basically. Uh, because the Chinese, in their writings, say to conduct an offensive campaign, they need air control, sea control, and information dominance. So you'd want army forces that emphasize air defense, uh, missile defense, and what used to be called in the army coastal defense, anti-ship cruise missiles, uh, the ability to put in anti-ship mines and provide a ground force overwatch. Not a lot of tanks, not a lot of tube artillery, rocket artillery, uh, maybe getting back into the INF business. Uh, I, I think that's, uh, that's a no-brainer. Uh, for the Navy, the Navy would need to uh, so step back for a second. The army can't maneuver very well along the first island chain. You just can't maneuver very easily between islands in an archipelago. Um, <clears throat> the Chinese, if you look at the geography, uh, they are operating on interior lines of communication. So uh, basically, we we're operating on the the outside of a of a say a, a circle, and they're operating on the inside. So all other things being equal, they can concentrate more quickly than we can counter concentrate. Which means that the ground forces, given their limited mobility, we have to rely on air and naval forces to counter concentrate. This was a this was actually a big planning factor during the Cold War, the Soviets' ability to concentrate at a point on the Central Front and our ability to counter-concentrate sufficient forces to block any kind of attack. So how do we do that? Well, that means the Air Force and the Navy are going to have to be more mobile. It also means that if you have long-range systems, it's easier to counter-concentrate forces. So during the Cold War, for example, uh, we had some discussions with the Soviets uh, in between the fall of the Berlin Wall and when the Soviet Union went out of business. 
And we, you know, what, 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 what was it about what we were doing in Europe that worried you? And to somewhat to our su surprise, they said, your attack helicopters and your ATACMs really worried us. And you know, just, you know, we were thinking you'd say, you know, the Abrams tank. And uh, what, what came to pass was they said, no, the fact that you could very quickly move helicopters, you know, concentrate them in an area, and you could maneuver the ATACM's fires over long distances. So you could, you know, you could very quickly mass firepower in a way that we couldn't with tanks. And they said that worried us. So if you're thinking about the Navy, the Navy actually has less range off the deck of a carrier than it did when it had the A6s, uh, you know, 40 years ago. You know, the, the Chinese, they are constantly increasing the range of their, their aircraft and their missiles, and we're shrinking the range. Well, um, you know, you don't want to be in that kind of, of a fight where the other guy can outrange you. And you also want to be in a situation where not only can you maneuver the maritime forces, but you can maneuver their fires because they've got extended range. And the same thing goes with the Air Force. Uh, you know, the Air Force is in love with fighter planes. It's dominated by fighter pilots. Uh, we should have fighter planes. Uh, but it's been an incredibly long time uh, to getting uh, to a bomber and, and some of these other kinds of capabilities that can operate at long range in, in very difficult environments. So I would say that that would be a good starting point. Um, I also think that given I've, one of the things I've been working on recently is the issue of scouting. Uh, because if you have precision weapons and you can identify and keep track of targets, uh, you don't have to worry about mass munitions. Uh, you know, precision munitions can, can pretty much do the job. But if you're looking at scouting, so much of the scouting now is done in space. And I think a fundamental question for us is uh, space and cyberspace. And by the way, thank you for the great work you did on that Solarium Commission. Solarium again. But... Um, I think those are going to be two highly contested domains. Uh, you know, we, we tend to think traditionally about, you know, air and land and sea, uh, space and cyberspace, I think. And if I had to add a third, it would be commerce rating on the seabed, which is something that we just haven't thought much at all about. Uh, this, at the uh, Getting back to victory at sea, there was this... Uh, Transports. I guess they didn't have enough uh, footage of us shooting up Japanese transports. And so if, if you ever watch Victory at Sea, the series, this poor transport gets shot up on about six or seven episodes of, of Victory at Sea. Uh, and that's, that's how you went after the other guy's economy at sea. Well, now about a third of the world's oil and gas comes from underwater uh, drilling. Uh, most of the fiber optic uh, <clears throat> data moves through undersea cables. And if you think, uh, you know, we and the Chinese are going to sit around and, and just sort of say, well, I guess that's out of bounds. I, I think that's, again, moonshine. So how are we thinking about space, cyberspace and the seabed? Because, again, I think those are going to be critical domains, especially if we don't want to press too hard in attacking the enemy's homeland. Uh, because of the risk of escalation to uh, kind of Armageddon exchange. So how do we, you know, how do we give ourselves off ramps, uh, but while also trying to encourage the other guy to come to the peace table? Um, so I, I've been at just kind of one of the things I'm obsessed with is that uh, at a time of intense partisan division, 
there isn't much controversy around the national security strategy and national defense strategy. I mean, you've just poked a lot of holes or, or suggested that even if you agree with the overall direction, there's a lot of um, gaps that need to be filled in those strategies, at least in terms of translating them into uh, operational art, we might call it. Um, do, you, do you see, do you think that there's meaningful differences on this issue right now between Biden's defense team and Trump's defense team? Or what are, do you think any of this will uh, get litigated in the election at all, or would just all be about other cultural issues? Well, um, I've had uh, several opportunities to talk with Secretary Esper, and uh, I think in particular his effort to uh, pick up the uh, the endorsement that Secretary Mattis made about the need to develop what Mattis called innovative operational concepts. So, you know, getting back to our conversation of, of how we defended Europe, um, you know, getting the military to focus on these. And I'm a bit discouraged by the fact that the, the military, once again, is, is going to do this by committee. It's got a, a Joak or a Joe something. Uh, and, and basically, I've been to this movie before. It's, it's a, a, a great team of people. They come in. Um, half of them are told before they go there, you know, make sure you don't mess with the program or record. You know, whatever this thing is, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's got to say the program or record is where we need to go because we don't trust those other people. So when you talk about fighting very differently, you're talking about a significantly different program or record. You're talking about winners and losers, winners and losers on the Hill and in industry and the military services and in the pecking order in the services. And when you talk to the army about air and missile defense, for example, uh, you're talking about challenging the dominant cultures in the army, which are you know tanks and, and tube artillery and mechanized infantry. So I'm encouraged uh, that Secretary Esper seems to be taking that on. What's discouraging is that with the possible exception of General Berger, um, you know, we don't see the beginning much traction there. On the Democrat side, um, someone who seems to have the inside track, at least people are, are talking quite a bit about her, is uh, Michelle Flournoy. And Michelle came out with an interesting piece in um, Foreign Affairs, again, talked about China, uh, talked about uh, deterrence. And I, I think deterrence is another one of those neglected issues that we, we ignore at our peril because the circumstances under which we have to deter have changed dramatically. Uh, since the Cold War and even in recent years. So she's looking at that and she's looking at um, issues like how do we go about developing a concept for uh, deterring China from acts of aggression. So there's there's some encouraging indicators there, but um, unfortunately, I, I think that uh, you know the the antibodies and the you know the resistance uh, until we're faced with a crisis, uh, I think are, are going to be pretty strong. And I would say that probably sometime during the course of this decade, uh, there's going to be a really tight squeeze on defense funding. Uh, and that, uh, again, uh, could uh, create some problems, too, because when you look at the, the size and the technical sophistication of the Chinese economy, even setting the Russians aside, relative to our economy, during the Cold War, the Russians maxed out in terms of GDP at about 40% of our economy. The Chinese are at about 70%, and they're growing at a faster rate than we are. 
And our allies are not spending anywhere near the amount of money in investing in their defenses that we had during the Cold War. So if you just look at it from the simple metric of GDP, uh, we are in much worse shape. And of course, uh, given current fiscal trends, I think the stress is going to be even greater in the coming years. Well, to connect it to an earlier point you made, amidst all of this ally bashing that's in vogue, and indeed it's been the desire of every president since Eisenhower to have our allies contribute more, but it has to start with the U.S. developing a concept of operations for, okay, this is what this is how we intend to deter or how we intend to fight, and here's where you, Japan, can fit into that. Here's what Australia can contribute to the fight. Here's where even Vietnam can factor into this overall strategy. And until we understand what we're trying to do, it's hard to us, for us to successfully convince our allies to do more. Yes, I, I totally agree with you on that, Michael. I, I would add to that a couple of things. One is the uh, if, if you want to look at uh, our alliances as a say, an investment portfolio, and uh, we made these investments in the early 1950s for the most part, uh, world's a very different place now. And so the question is, uh, you know, dealing with China, I, I, would not, um, uh, I would not chase any of our allies away. Um, I think that would be foolish. Uh, but we may want to look at what countries are, uh, would be the most attractive allies for us. Uh, and it's not just in terms of military capability. The, the Chinese are well known for thinking about positional advantage and how position and basing uh, can give you a great advantage over your rivals. And when we did the archipelagic defense study for OSD, um, Mr. Marshall very pointedly said to me, don't tell me where you'd like us to be. Tell, us, tell me where we have to be. Tell, tell me those countries where we either have to be or they have to be our allies. And I think that was very instructive uh, because um, you, we ended up saying, you know, Vietnam was more important to us than South Korea. And uh, it wasn't as though we don't want South Korea. It was just, uh, you know, what's the pecking order here? Uh, you know, who do we need to cultivate and develop? And it wasn't because of their military capability or their investments. It was we needed that 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 territory. Uh, so, uh, you know, India um, in India is not an ally. I, at best, I think it could be a partner. But again, um, it's Europe isn't the focal point right now. It's the Indo-Pacific. And so, you know, countries like India, countries like Indonesia, even Singapore gives us a uh, great positional advantage. So, uh, again, I, I think from that. And then the, the other thing is, even if allies don't um, invest a lot necessarily, uh, and even though they may not be reliable uh, to the extent that, say, the NATO allies were during the Cold War, there are things we might be able to do to help them help us, but also to exert influence on them. So, for example, um, you know, I, I, this is probably a, a poor uh, analogy, but uh, if we were the Federal Reserve of Precision Guided Munitions, okay, which, of course, as you know, we're lacking in, in that area, but uh, if, if, if we were able to say, look, um, Singaporeans, uh, Indians, uh, Japanese, equip your aircraft to carry these kinds of munitions. Uh, not only do we 
can we potentially greatly boost our, our capability, but we also are tying those countries closer to us in terms of, of their needs. Um, if we take them to our high fidelity training centers and we verse them on our, our communication systems, if we can get straighten those out, uh, then you know we can plug them in. Uh, it, it becomes very, um, uh, very. It gives us an option in the sense that uh, we can either give them access to these munitions and the uh, you know the battle network, uh, and when the war is over, we could take it away. Uh, and and so uh, we're building capacity. Uh, we're we're helping them uh, help us. You know, hopefully we're doing the same. And I think we need some innovative thinking about how we approach allies and partners that, uh, you know, given the new kinds of capabilities and new kinds of problems that we face. Well said. Okay, so we have about four minutes left. I want to do some fun stuff uh, oh, with stuff. you. Uh, okay, I see your bookshelf behind you. I believe you have some William Manchester uh, Churchill books there. Uh, Manchester's biography of MacArthur is one of my favorite books of all time. Ah, yeah. um, Caesar. In, indeed, indeed. Uh, in which we learn that Wisconsin not only won World War II, but also the Civil War uh, <laughs> because of the, the MacArthur's connection well, to Wisconsin. Those black hat fellows, the Iron that's, Brigade. That's right. <laughs> um, do, you all, do you read fiction? Do you make time to read fiction or is it all business all the time? Um, I, I rarely read fiction. So are you... So, so is like a bio, a good biography for you, a, a fun read? I like uh, Andrew Roberts, uh, if you're familiar. So his biography just of came Churchill. came out with a Churchill book, right? What? You just came out with a Churchill yes, book, right? Yes, yeah. uh, And then before that, Napoleon. And uh, if, uh, that was an excellent biography, a great insight into France. He also did one called Masters and Commanders, which looked at Marshall, FDR, uh, Churchill, and Allenbrook. Uh, you know, basically at the conferences and how they thought strategically about the war. Uh, he has one, uh, a book on World War II that I think is very interesting. Uh, with, I've got a storm of war. It's on the shelf here. Um, I'm, I've been doing some work on deterrence, so I've been looking at the cognitive sciences. And Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, is, is one I'd recommend to folks. A great Princetonian. And, and then um, been doing uh, as sort of a, I would say it's a hobby, but uh, the thesis on the, is the American Republic in decline. And so uh, I've been reading um, uh, de Tocqueville, uh, rereading de Tocqueville, uh, trying to get a handle on that, some of the, uh, you know, the work of the founding fathers. And so, you know, looking at that, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's mostly uh, David Hackett Fisher. I don't know if you're a fan of his. I love Washington's Crossing yes. sits and, next to American Caesar on my shelf. Well, and if you haven't read Paul Revere's Ride. Uh, I have not. It, it's, uh, it is, it is basic. It's basically uh, the prequel to Washington's Crossing. Love so uh, if, if you haven't read uh, that, I would say. And then uh, if you ever read Robert Caro. Uh, uh, passage to power is the LBJ guy, right? Yes. Yeah. And he's okay. also, so, so again, I grew up on Long Island. His first book was on Robert Moses. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, uh, that was rated as one of the top 100, uh, nonfiction books of the 20th century in the English language. Wow. And based, people ask Kara, why LBJ, why Robert Moses? And he said, I'm fascinated by people who acquire, not only acquire power, but know how to use it expertly. And Moses and LBJ were two people who knew how to do both. 
And so it, it really is, uh, you know, some people acquire power for power's sake. Uh, these gentlemen acquired power and they knew what to do with it. And, wow. and uh, so anyway. Well, g- given that this all started with a TV series, Victory at Sea, uh, do you watch TV? Do you have any lowbrow uh, uh, hobbies? Yeah, I, um, let's see. Uh, the- I watch Last Man Standing. Okay. Okay. Which is a Tim Allen comedy, so watch that. Um, I watch, uh, I've, I've been a fan of mysteries. So okay. uh, the BBC runs some mysteries, and I'll, I'll check those out. I'm a big fan of Agatha Christie, uh, G.K. Chesterton. Um, and uh, uh, that's uh, that's sort of uh, you know what I do in terms of television. Oh, I, I like, go ahead. I, sorry. I would say if, if you haven't seen it, uh, the one movie, I rarely go to the movies, but before COVID hit, I saw um, Midway, uh, which was uh, the uh, the special effects were jaw dropping, and it was nice that they told the story from Pearl Harbor all the way through to Midway. Some of the actors are, to my mind, incongruous. Uh, Woody uh, Harrelson playing, yeah. <laughs> it's hard to get past that. But uh, other than that, um, I, I thought it was a, it's a it's a movie that uh, young people ought to see to see what young people back in the 1940s were doing for this country. I agree with that 100%. I, I also just love that you described studying whether America is in decline as a hobby of yours. So you <laughs> more fun hobbies, doctor. But okay, final question for you. Uh, when you come to Green Bay to visit me and uh, I, I buy you a beer in the shadow of Lambeau Field, let's say a kid comes up to you and says, uh, Dr. Krepinevich, I, I, I heard your podcast with Mike Gallagher and I, I, I want to I pursue a career in the military, but I want to be a a good pastor. I want to be a soldier scholar like you. What what advice would you have for that young kid from Northeast Wisconsin? Uh, I, I would say uh, a lot of sustained uh, intellectual effort. I would say uh, the path uh, to where you want to go is probably through the social sciences department at West Point. Uh, going back and teaching there. Um, and uh, I would say identifying a, a mentor. And I've been fortunate in life to have several really good mentors. Uh, you know, Eisenhower had Fox Connor and George Marshall. Um, I'm no Eisenhower, but those are the kind of people uh, who I think can really uh, make a difference in uh, making sure that you're asking the right questions, focusing on the uh, the right problems, uh, you know, these sorts of things. So th- those are some of the things I, I tell them. And then uh, I would tell them that I still think Chandler missed the field goal in the overtime game in 65 to beat my Baltimore Colts. <laughs> Cultivating a deep knowledge of early NFL history is also essential to any career. <laughs> Speaking of great books, Moranis' biography of Vince Lombardi, in which West Point uh, pride I, still mattered. Well, I uh, that's I do read sports books. Okay. And so, uh, big uh, Baltimore Colt fan. Of course, they don't exist anymore. Uh, but I do have Marinus's book. Um, I do have uh, Jerry Kramer's uh, uh, Instant Replay. It is a sequel, Distant Replay. So uh, love the pack when they're not when they weren't playing the Colts. Uh, and unfortunately, when they played the Colts, they usually beat them. Uh, so We've been it's lucky in recent years, although we always we can't get back to the Super Bowl. Kramer comes back to the community all the time. He's a hell of a guy. 
Uh, yeah, from what I understand, and uh, he uh, just uh, he had a uh, Lombardi could be a tough guy, but Kramer had an emotional attachment to him, like Horning. Uh, yeah. uh, Horning was really in a way uh, Lombardi's uh, second son, I guess. Yeah. So uh, yeah, you and I, when we have the beer and the kid comes in, we'll talk a lot about uh, the Green Bay Packers too. I love that. Well, thank you, uh, Doctor. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Same here, Michael. Take care. Have a great weekend. Thank you.